the Archive of Market and Social Research was formally set up in 2016, basically because people were aware that a lot of work that was on paper was was just being thrown away as companies merged. And I mean, I, I remember myself, you know, somebody would say to me, oh, the garage that we keep some, a lot of our archives in is leaking and the lease is up. Shall we just get rid of it all? And I'm afraid I remember saying yes at the time. Hi, and welcome to the Soapbox podcast, a podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. I'm Tilly Lewis, and I'm Box Clever's marketing manager. And my glamorous co-host is Richard Brown, a research director at Box Clever. Combined, we make soapboxes. As insight specialists, we spend our time helping our clients understand what makes consumers tick. But on this podcast, we'll find out what makes people behind the insights tick what keeps them up at night and what makes them who they are. So for our 11th episode, we're very pleased to welcome Phyllis McFarlane, who has been in the market and social research industry for over 30 years. She's a former managing director of GFK. She's promoted the power of research globally. In 2021, she was awarded the MRS gold medal. So this was for her dedication to the industry. I had the pleasure of meeting Phyllis through her amazing work at the AMSR. Phyllis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I suppose a nice way to start is telling us maybe, Phyllis, how, how did you end up in research? Like most people, by accident. So in my day, when you graduated, I was a maths graduate, and basically, you know, you were told to teach or do go into accountancy. And I definitely didn't want to do that. Um, and I did my, uh, you used to go around to the milk round and, and meet all the companies and everything. And uh, I, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I was there with my boots and my mini skirt and my eye makeup and my long hair. And they'd say, well, what, you know, what can you offer to Shell or whatever? And I said, I don't know. What have you got for me? <laughs> Definitely not the way around. And I went to the University of London. I was at University College London. I went to the University of London Careers Advice. I met this wonderful chap and he, I talked to him and at the end he said, he said, you know, you know, you, you're not that fed up with maths and whatever. He said, you just need to, to get a twist on it. Have you thought of market research? And I said, what's that? Because I have no idea what market research was. And he explained. And I said, oh, that's, that sounds quite interesting. So I think I wrote off to the Market Research Society and got this tiny leaflet of the companies in the market research industry. And I sent off a few little you didn't even send off a CV in those days. You just sort of sent a letter saying, hey, I'd like to join you. And again, I met somebody, I think it was on a, he interviewed me on a Saturday morning and he said, well, I haven't got a job for you, but I know who does. And, um, and I, was, I was sent off to a couple of people and I got a couple of offers and I ended up at MIL, which is Market Investigations Limited, as an assistant statistician and uh, never looked back. I thought, this is it. This was what it was all for. <laughs> yeah. What year are we talking about? Oh, that's a very impolite question to ask. 1969. A good year. A I've very heard. good it's year. A good year. <laughs> I have a reason for asking the question. I wonder whether your experience back then of 
this sort of hidden industry and, and sort of needing somebody, fortunately, to sort of guide you into it. I, I wonder whether that is still the experience of lots of young people, lots of graduates, even today, all those years later. I, I wouldn't know, but perhaps you do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I bet we're not much bigger a proportion of um, of the world's output as we were then. I always remember standing beside uh, Simon Chadwick at, at an SMR uh, presentation on the size of the industry. And he, he said to me, he said, do you realise, Felice, he said that the market research industry is the same size as the Pampas brand? And I thought, <laughs> I thought well, that sort of puts us in our place, doesn't it? But we are not a big industry. No, I mean, we, I think we do much more with uh, the MRS does quite a bit of outreach to universities and ever. But I, I would imagine most people haven't a clue what we do. So, yeah, we need more guidance. If you hadn't have gotten to market research, what path do you think you might have gone down? Well, I don't know. I mean, having recently, which we're going to talk about later, uh, been talking to a lot of um, modern British history professors who are all lovely ladies, I rather fancy that I could have been a modern British historian. <laughs> there's still time. There's still time. No, no. Well, I did apply for a PhD, not to do myself, but to supervise. But anyway, that's another story. As we've mentioned, you know, we first had the pleasure of meeting you through the AMSR. For those that aren't sure, could you um, tell us a little bit about? The Archive of Market and Social Research, we've sort of been talking about it actually for about uh, 15 years, but it was, was formally set up in 2016, basically because people were aware that a lot of work that was on paper was, was just being thrown away as companies merged. And I mean, I, I remember myself, you know, somebody would say to me, oh, the garage that we keep some, a lot of our archives in is leaking and the lease is up. Shall we just get rid of it all? And I'm afraid I remember saying yes at the time. So people thought that, you know, our heritage was being lost and it, it, it should be valuable, though we had no idea as to how it might be valuable. You know, some of the, um, the elder statesmen, including Liz Nelson, of course, decided we'd, we'd set to and we would save as much market research as we could for posterity. And uh, I joined the archive in 2019 when a lot of the heavy lifting had been done, thank goodness. <laughs> I'm, I'm head of content, so I make sure that we carry on collecting content. Uh, but mainly um, my role and my passion, if you like, is, is getting people to use the archive. Who does use the archive and, and what do they use it for? Well, it's very interesting. I, I mean, I'm afraid you might find I can go on forever about this. We thought that it would be the industry, but the industry has really become so sort of adept at fast, quick delivery. They're not so interested in history anymore and clients aren't particularly interested in history. So when we came to it, we thought, well, most the best people to use this are historians. So our uh, chairman, Paddy Barwise of uh, the London Business School, gave us some contacts because his wife is a historian. And I started contacting these modern British historians talking about using the archive um, for modern British history research and, uh, and undergraduates. And that was quite successful, but a little bit slow. And then recently, uh, a couple of years ago, one of our members... Uh, was a governor of a school and we thought maybe we could use it for modern British history A level. So that's the thing we're focusing on moment because we're trying to build our usage to build our credibility and whatever. So we've just had a campaign 
to get secondary schools in the UK to use it for modern British history. So these days, if you are doing a modern British history A-level, you have to do, as part of your coursework, a 5,000 word dissertation. I don't think I could have written 5,000 words when I was 18. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it can be on a subject of your choice, but they give you guidance as to what it should be. So a very common one is discuss the downfall of Mrs. Thatcher in 1990, or what sort of job did the British government do uh, with, of immigration in the 60s and 70s, or how, why did it take so long for Britain to join the EU? And of course, we have loads of opinion polls and material on, on that, sort of, uh, that sort of thing. So it, it can be very useful. And the last time I, I talked to the girls at the pilot school, one of them wanted and decided she wanted to do the influence of music on modern culture and advertising. And of course, we've got a lot of material on what sort of music you should use in adverts and things like that. So it, it really is quite fascinating. So that's our, our portfolio of users at the moment. And we'll come on to plans later. I have plans as to how to get the, uh, the industry involved but let me give you a couple of examples of of the sorts of things yeah please do we just wanted to do an article on cricket for the test series and uh we looked at what we got and lo and behold we had a 1966 study for the mcc on the state of cricket and you'll never guess what things haven't changed that much (laughs) and uh another one the other uh, a few weeks ago i was feeling a bit poorly i was listening to radio four and it was just before the coronation and sir john curtis was on and he said on the radio he said there wasn't much research on done on the monarchy in the 60s and 70s because they were so popular that nobody needed to ask and I thought, what on earth is he talking about? And he said, well, the earliest I could find is 1983. So I was on there the next morning and right, saying, here's the 1969. Again, it was an NOP survey of the monarchy. And of course, he was, he was quite grateful for it. So that's the sort of one range. In another, one of the modern British historians that I was talking to, Professor Jane Hamlet, was doing a study on the history of pets. And... She was writing a paper on Siamese cats, and you know cats are always popular. And she found a study, a qualitative study of pet owners on moist cat food from 1973. And it, this study was done by Peter Cooper, who's one of the great doyens of um, of qualitative research in the industry. Had done a segmentation of cat owners, and she used it in her study of Siamese cats, her analysis of cat owners and, and, and all of that. So just such a range of material. You can't, we have a PhD student who's working on kitchen design uh, with particular reference to Kenwood. And we have studies on Kenwood mixers, again, from the seventies, you know, which she's been able to use. So, so such a range of material, you can't believe how, um, how much we have and how useful it can be. I was just saying, with, with that incredible breadth, Phyllis. Yeah. What are the plans for the for the future of the archive? Then, how is that material going to be used? Well, we've got to get awareness up. That's the key thing. So, I spend a lot of my time. I I um I did a a little lecture to masters students at King's College recently. So, masters students of contemporary history and politics, 
And they are, they're different from uh, the A-level students. The A-level students are, are all Mrs. Thatcher and that sort of period. These are all Tony Blair because they're studying deeper. So it, it, it's creating awareness, which I hope this podcast might help with. The main plan at the moment, apart from bombarding all these poor teachers with um, use, use the archive, download our latest book and whatever, I'm also doing some probably webinar training for market researchers because I'm sure you're aware a lot of a lot of people who joined the industry in the last few years or anybody who's not terribly senior who's been in the end, they haven't had a great deal of training from working at home. So I'm going to do some some webinars to, to show examples of how the archive can help by giving them context and depth and background to what they're doing. So anyway, it's driving usage and becoming accredited. Um, you know, so you have to have full-time employees in an archive and generally getting the, the archive known. We, we ha- are developing a relationship with Mass Observation, who have done this sort of before us and, uh, and learning from them how to, uh, how to do all of this. So we have lots of plans. Before we move on and, and talk about the various strings to your bow, I wanted to make sure that we talked about um, the books that mm. AMSR yes. uh, publishes and to talk about the, the most recent one. Yes. Uh, so please tell us about um, AMSR and, and its books. Well, the books are a way, if you like, of, of sort of stabilising the, the archive of showing showing off our content, showcasing our content. So we've, we've, we've done two books on how we've changed and market research methodologies. But this third one is more geared to academic users and it's called Researching the Public um, and it's about policy polling. So it's got articles, uh, for example, from Sir John Curtis on referendums, um, from Peter Kellner on how political parties use polls to develop strategy. Andy did a uh, researching war and we looked at the effect of war on opinions of leaders uh, and leadership. So it's the effect of research. And I think think the background is that research, we can measure what doesn't change and we also measure what does change. And we can look at that and learn from it to go forward. So the books are available. They're free to download. You have to pay if you want a printed copy. Well, tell us what else you do, Phyllis, because I know you've got so many things up your sleeve to think about. I, I was chairman of the MRS. They still keep me hanging around to uh, on the Audit and Risk Committee and, uh, and, and things like that. I judge awards and things like that. I support SMR Foundation. Again, on the education side, we fund scholarships in, in developing markets and things like that. I mean, all the time when I was a, at NOP, my, my main... My main passion, if you like, was always training. So I think you know that I did this huge programme for GFK after I stopped being uh, managing director of GFK NOP. And there's a tip to somebody joining, always have your succession sorted out. (laughs) I said to GFK, I'd like to do more international work. GFK have a Varine, which is like a foundation. And they just got a commission, if you like, with a big NGO to develop education in market research in Africa. And so I became the project leader of that. And we set up postgraduate qualifications in Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria and Ghana. So I went out to Kenya. I used to go out three times a year doing guest lectures. 
to the, uh, the it was a master's in marketing with a specialization of market research. But it was fabulous because the African students, they didn't want all the boring old stuff. They wanted um, exciting new new things. And so I used to scour the industry for exciting presentations and case studies that, um, that I could borrow and, uh, and take to show them. So it was fabulous. And we also, uh, Ryan, this wasn't funded by anybody, we also set up a summer school in Beijing to train market research students in China. So this was at, the, at Kufi, which is sort of the LSE of uh, Chinese universities. And so we had these terribly bright economics and finance students, and we, we taught them market research and innovation. I mean, you've obviously had an incredible career traveling internationally, and your passion is um, kind of working and, and, and educating and, and teaching. Can you, could you give any advice to, to youngsters that are looking to embark in a career and insight? I would always say get into an area that's new and growing. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid don't be a teacher or an accountant or go into an industry that, that's well established or an industry that's changing. So in my day, it was technology. I mean, when I started, telephone interviewing was unheard of. And so if you're on the ground floor, you get a chance to, to take from everywhere else and think, well, how do we tackle this subject? You know, how do you actually do it? How do you make it work? So get into something where you're going to be involved in the development. Mm-hmm. So join something new. Yeah, I mean, we're always saying it in market. Be curious about the things about you. Someone was saying to me yesterday that graduates now, they get stuck into a little niche. You know, you just do this. And if they're not careful, they end up, that's all they can do. And they haven't got perspective in order to move on. So, so be sure that you get to do different jobs and different areas and get experience because it's only when you've got, creativity doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from all the inputs that you, you put into it. And with so much success, um, so many achievements, such an impact, it makes me wonder, uh, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your career? Oh, apart from today, obviously, Phyllis. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The, the worst thing is when things go wrong, obviously. Probably a most embarrassing moment was um, it was a company we'd taken over and jobs were going wrong. And I went with a quite young researcher to a client um, who was very annoyed with something was late and whatever. And this young researcher explained to him very carefully that the one of the things they discovered was the questionnaire in German took quite a lot longer than the questionnaire in English. And I was hiding under the chair, you know, I mean, really, you know, she should have known that in advance sort of thing. There's that. And of course, when elections go wrong, I, I, um, I wasn't MD of NOP in the 1992 election, but, you know, we didn't cover ourselves with glory then, mistakes were made. And similarly in 2016, when you know, we said, oh, we got the wrong samples. And I thought, well, surely it's our jobs to get the right samples. So those are the moments when you're sort of cringing and wishing you weren't there. Flip it on its head for us. You know, what's what's the, the, the best insight or the best project or the highlight, really? That's a difficult I was managing director. The highlights are when you win big jobs. You know, when you win a really big programme of work, that you know is going to, you know, keep your company buoyant and growing and developing and, and whatever. You have to, uh, you have to uh, 
say those are, are great moments. You know, those are the times when you really go out and party. I mean, I remember we used to run a small bit of um, MIR um, and uh, we had a two million pound month, you know, and that was big. And we, we had a hell of a party. Um, we'd won two big jobs from BT. But then quite soon after that, we realised that actually we had to win that every month, otherwise we wouldn't stay in business. So <laughs> reality soon kicks in. How do you like to celebrate? How do you like to party these days? I like to go to very expensive restaurants and drink very expensive wine, I'm afraid. That sounds perfect. If we're going out tonight, where where are we going and, and what wine are we drinking then? Oh, well, oh dear, that's very difficult. We were taken out by our sponsors. We were taken to Spring in Somerset House and we had, we drank the most delightful, it was nectar. It's a near salt. <laughs> and, uh, and we had the most wonderful food. It was marvellous. But I wouldn't say that that was just very, very nice. I mean, if we go, if you're going out to party, you've got to go to one of these, these big restaurants where you, there's a whole load of you and, uh, and you eat delicious food and drink yourself under the table. <laughs> what was life like when you were young, Phyllis? Whereabouts did you grow up? Oh, I was brought up in uh, near Bolton. My, my, uh, my father was a dairy farmer in the 50s and he moved to Cheshire for a better climate. I had quite an idyllic childhood in some ways in that, you know, I, I lived on a farm, I had a very good education, things were good, yeah. You know, my mother was very keen that I would get on. She taught me that it was a man's world and if you wanted to get on, you know, you had to beat them and she set me on my way. So, you know, I, I, I had a pretty good childhood in that sort of sense. And, and I had a, I did maths at university, which was interesting and not that much work. And then I came to London from the countryside, which was brilliant, gave you a chance to grow up. And how do you think you've changed over the years, Phyllis? Um, all that time, those different locations, those different experiences. I like to think I haven't changed, but of course we do. I think the main thing, well, I learned very early on, because I, I was sort of brought up a little bit to think that I knew best. And... Um, very independent and I knew the answers and I know and I learned very early on how other people have good ideas and that if you cooperate and have a good team then then you do far far better a job than than you do on your own which which is quite hard for me because I definitely come from from the sort of background that I know best and I'm going to tell you what to do so so that was quite quite difficult so that was sort of growing away from my, my background and the way I was brought up into research and, and management. I just learned how good other people were and how you could do so, so much better in collaboration. It, it, it's quite, uh, quite strange, but I don't think I, I changed fundamentally. I don't know. You look at old photographs now and you realise you have, of course. But that was the key thing. And, and uh, learning that helping others is important was, uh, was a very, very key thing, which I wouldn't have certainly thought of in my 20s particularly. What do you find to be a particular issue within the insight industry? I think the lack of time for reflection. Yeah. I mean... People tell me now that, you know, if you get a briefing, you, you're expected to get the proposal out the next day or the day after if you're really lucky and you're expected to turn the data around 
um, very quickly. I mean, once you start automating things too much, you don't have time to reflect. I think that, um, that you, you, you can make a lot of mistakes. It's always been the case, but the lack of time for reflection and improvement and I think it's a bit scary. A, a sort of a macro or, or, or a bigger level of reflection, like a, a, a project or um, a theme, I think it's a real worry. But think about what you were saying earlier, you know, in the, the, the sort of our current culture, I suppose, of, you know, if you run a focus group or you do a debrief and you do it on Teams and then you're straight onto the next Teams message or, or you walk away from the, the laptop, I miss, really used to appreciate that reflection that you would do with a colleague or a client straight after walking to the tube, yes. going for a beer, yeah. you know, that immediate kind of post-mortem. A, a lot of that, I think, has been lost. And that's all, that's reflection time, isn't it? That's, 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 yeah analysis in a way if you've already had to do the debrief you know you you don't reflect and you move on and, and you don't know no i know and, and ai now it's going to be very interesting what it can do and uh, you know we'll have to see if how well it can mine the archive um or whatever but it is scary but hopefully you know the companies will will take the time to experiment and pilot you know they don't just be rushed into uh, adopting what everybody else is doing because the client says we've got to do this. I mean, clients too are under the same sort of pressure. I mean, again, in my day, market research was a big department. The market research client was an important person. He was the only person who had any data. But I mean, they're all absorbed now into insight and marketing. And, you know, it, it, it's tough for everybody, isn't it? So the demand for quick data and don't care if it's right or wrong. I think that's the biggest threat. But we have been saying that for 20 or 30 years. So, <laughs> so you know, and, and the industry's still surviving, isn't it? If you could say kind of thank you or, or sorry to someone, um, who would it be and, and what would you say? Oh, that is a difficult one. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I, I'd just say thank you to all the people in the industry. I mean, it has been a fabulous opportunity. To, to grow and develop and invent things and help people. And, you know, it's led to me having a fabulous retirement Yeah. because, uh, you know, I just I can't stop getting involved in things. Well, what would you see yourself kind of doing next for this? I know, obviously, like you've just mentioned, you are retired, but what are your plans? What I do is I sort of have plenty of irons in the fire because when you do a lot of voluntary work, you can never know what will what will be important or whatever. I really would love to get the archive onto the, as a recommended source on the curriculum of history mm -hmm. and, uh, and politics A-level and into libraries at universities. I want it to, um, you know, you talk about, I mean, the, uh, the concept of a disruptive archive is probably a contradiction in terms, but I want it to be a different archive. I want it to be a supportive archive yeah and i mean the best thing about the pilot we did was that a lot of i think there were 12 girls doing history a level and four or five of them actually used it in their dissertations the others were doing other subjects but every one of them said that it got them into using archives uh, which they thought was scary before and they thought oh it's not too bad and i thought that you know that is that is really quite something to have just got somebody over that hurdle mm. to learning to use more sources because you're giving somebody 
depth and understanding and perspective and breadth, aren't you? And uh, I find that's that's good. But I, I I support all sorts of things. I've got I try and support charities that that um, promote women in industry and and whatever. And I I shall just carry on. Yeah. I've got the garden to keep me busy if I run out of things. To do. <laughs> oh, well, I might uh, speak to you offline about that, Phyllis. I need some gardening advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. So we must say a massive thank you to Phyllis for taking your time out of your busy schedule. We really hope you've had as much fun as we have. And next on the Soapbox podcast, we are joined by Lara Mayer, who is a researcher turned coach. She supports leaders in the insight industry, so not to be missed. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.